This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. I am reading the revised and expanded edition dedicated to P.T. Bauer, Ford by Gary North. Chapter 8, The Law and the Prophets. A company based on biblical norms rather than profit. Ronald Sider, The Wittenberg Door, October 1979, page 13. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Isaiah 48:17. The notion that there can be any such thing as unfair profit is one of the oldest socialist ideas produced by two problems which are central to the very nature of socialism, envy and ignorance. Envy because socialists assume that anyone who is successful must be wicked, and ignorance because socialists do not understand economics. In his brief section on profits, Ronald Sider has fallen prey to both of these errors. The section is titled, Making a Fair Profit, the implication being, of course, that the high profits he goes on to cite are unfair. He lists examples of certain profit-making enterprises and then states that the returns on investments in poor countries are unjustly high. His logic seems to be that high profits, or at least profits above a certain undefined percentage, are necessarily unjust. No proof is given for this assertion. He does not tell us just how high profits should be. He does not reveal his infallible source, which determines what a fair return on investment is. He does not show that these profits were obtained in an unjust manner, in which case it would be not the profits but the entire enterprise itself that is unjust. To repeat, Sider says certain profits are very high and concludes that they are unjust. As long as you don't think demonstration is essential to an argument, you could say that Sider has put his case very nicely. He seems to feel uneasy about this, however. Some uneducated readers may have missed the logical link which ties high profits to injustice. So for those of us who can't quite plumb the depths, he adds a helpful note. The reader without a degree in economics probably wishes international economics were less complex or that faithful discipleship in our time had less to do with such a complicated subject. That was the whole problem, dear reader. You don't have a degree in economics. You didn't probe through the excretions of Keynes and Galbraith. That's why you don't understand. So let Father Steider take you by the hand and he will lead you skillfully 
through the maze of economic theory. He's got some competition, though. Solomon said you could study the book of Proverbs to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1, 2 through 7. According to Solomon, we can come to a capable understanding of what is fair and just simply by submitting to God's revelation and studying the biblical implications of God's law. Of course, they didn't grant degrees in economics in those days, but even if they had, the psalmist exclaimed, I have more insight than all my teachers, for, my, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 119, verse 97, 99. The Bible is the standard for every aspect of life. It tells us a great deal about economics. It tells us that God's law alone is the standard of right and wrong, of justice and injustice. We might therefore expect that the Bible would have much to say about how to discern exactly when a prophet rises above a fair level. But it does not. From this fact, there are two possible conclusions. Either God was waiting for Marx or Cider to come along and do it for him, or there is, su- there is no such thing as an unjust prophet. For the remainder of this chapter, I am assuming that the latter option is correct. The issue of profits centers on the problem of production. How does the entrepreneur know where to channel investments? Or to put it another way, how can the wants of consumers be satisfied? The entrepreneur attempts to anticipate and meet constantly changing future consumer demands by directing the various factors of production in such a way as to make them provide what the people want in the most efficient and profitable way. If he fails to forecast the market correctly, he will suffer losses. If his decision is correct, he will make a profit. The profit is the tangible sign of success in serving consumer wants. A large profit means the entrepreneur has been very successful. He has not wasted resources, which are now released to the market to serve other consumer preferences. It is commonly assumed that profits are arbitrary, that the entrepreneur says, well, let's see, cost of production amounted to such and such, I will add on a profit of X percent and make a lot of money. But the entrepreneur cannot control demand. If the demand for his product is low, he will suffer losses. The entrepreneur does not set a profit. He does not know the future. The price, and hence the profit, will be determined by consumer demand in relation to the supply. If many consumers want the product, they will bid up the price in order to get the product. The profit comes from consumers who outbid other consumers in competition for it. The fact that profits are high means that many consumers are bidding, and this means that the entrepreneur has correctly discerned their needs. 
he makes a profit in direct relationship to how well he has satisfied their desires. Remember this law. Consumers compete against consumers, while sellers compete against sellers. It follows that the man who makes the highest profit is the man who is best serving the public. By best, I do not mean that everything the public wants is good, nor do I mean that a bubblegum producer who makes high profits in serving the public better than the man who sacrifices his life to care for the poor or the sick. But I do mean that the successful entrepreneur, assuming he has not defrauded or coerced his buyers, has satisfied consumer demand better than his competitors. You and I might wish consumer demand were directed toward other objects. I would like this book to be a bestseller, but it probably won't be. So what? Unless we can demonstrate from Scripture that product X is sinful, not just luxurious or trivial or silly, we cannot say that the, that the profit received from producing it is wrong. <coughs> and if the item itself is wrong, we should stop talking about profits and start talking about prohibiting its production, since that's where the real problem is. Concern with profits is such, as such betrays an envious mind more disturbed that someone is successful than that the basis of his success may be wrong. The average man probably associates high profits with high prices. This is not usually the situation in the free market. Henry Ford became a billionaire because he saw the truth of free market economics. High profits are associated with low prices and high wages. He redesigned mass production methods of manufacturing and applied them to automobile production. He then went out and offered to pay $5 per day to relatively unskilled laborers, an unheard of wage in those days. He offered Americans the first low-priced automobile, the Model T, and he sold millions of them. It was the enormous volume of sales that made him rich. Price competition was the key to wealth, and still is. The method of selling to a mass consumer market, thereby reducing unit cost of production, is price competition. It helps make everyone rich. How does the entrepreneur get his profits? By forecasting accurately future demand and future cost of production. He is in competition with other producer entrepreneurs. He tries to find special niches in the market where his competitors have failed to see an opportunity for profit. Because they have failed to see that consumers in this uncertain future will probably, he thinks, be willing to pay for a particular good or service they have failed to enter the market for producer goods. Because they are not in there actively bidding up the price of raw materials, labor, and capital goods, the prices of these goods are low for the moment. The competition has stayed out of the producer goods auction, so the hopeful entrepreneur enters this market, buys up the goods, and diverts them into production. If he has been correct in his forecast, 
he will be able to sell consumers the goods they want at a price they are willing and able to pay. The man's profit comes from the discrepancy between the cost of production and sales revenue. But of course, these original conditions are unlikely to last very long. His competitors figure out what he has done, and they enter the producer goods market and start bidding up the prices so that they too can profit by selling to consumers. Everyone's profit margin shrinks, which is as it should be. Has the original entrepreneur exploited the consumers? Hardly. He saw that they wanted and provided it. He saw what they wanted and provided it for them. If he had not seen their present preferences back when he started out, no one would have produced the consumer goods or services in question. The consumers would have had a smaller selection of goods to choose from. Far from having exploited the consumers, the entrepreneur who makes a profit has demonstrated his ability to serve the consumers well. Without his foresight, his willingness to bear risk, and his production and marketing skills, the consumers would have had fewer of their high-preference items to choose from. Not only that, his high profits, if above the rate of interest return and management fee return, which he pays to himself, will alert other entrepreneurs to enter the market and provide even wider quantity of goods to select from. Why, then, are high profits so evil? It is the opportunity for making high, though admittedly temporary, profits that provides the consumers with the carrot with which they can lure entrepreneurs to meet their ever-changing fickle demands. The profit motive, coupled with a social order which permits men to seek and retain profits, is the source of the consumer's sovereignty over national even international production. Take away the opportunity to make and keep high profits, and you have turned the power of making production decisions over to the state's bureaucrats. The entrepreneur is a middleman, not a tyrant. Production decisions have to be made by somebody. Either the untouchables in the state bureaucracies decide for the consumers in the name of the people, or else profit-seeking, risk-taking entrepreneurs will decide. An incompetent entrepreneur will soon be out of business. He will stop wasting the community's scarce economic resources in the production of items that the public prefers to skip. An incompetent, monopolistic, government-protected, bureaucratic planning committee is a lot harder to remove. So take your pick. Production by compulsion or production for profit. There is no third choice. Seeing profits in this light helps us to understand something else about the high profit complaint. If we say that someone's profits are too high, we mean one of two things. First, that the entrepreneur was too efficient. If he had done his job poorly, he would have directed the factors of production less efficiently and the cost of production would have been higher, with the result that his profit margin would have been slimmer. But no, that wicked profiteer was able to allocate the scarce factors of production in the most careful and prudent manner, and thus he was able to reap high returns. The second thing we might mean 
by saying his profits are too high is that he made too many people happy. The only way to make high profits is by meeting a high demand. If someone makes a very high profit, it means that many people wanted that item and are willing to pay high prices to get it. A more moderate man would not have tried to satisfy so many people. But that wicked profiteer is so despicable that he would please everyone in the world if he could. God has structured the world so that those who are best at satisfying the public have the most control of production. This is the function of profits. The price system of the market transmits information about consumer wants and the profits go to those who are most efficient in using capital to supply those wants. Complaints about profits really mean, I disapprove of those consumer wants. Now that you realize what you actually meant, you can write a book. Not about the evil of profits, but about why people should drink orange juice instead of Pepsi. And if lots of people like your book, you might make a high profit yourself, in addition to encouraging orange juice sales. We should know further that high profits are temporary. High profits attract entrepreneurs, and in hopes of making profits, they will begin producing the demanded item. As the supply increases in relation to demand, prices fall. And as competitors now bid up factor prices, profits decrease. Outside of a true monopoly, which means coercion it, to keep out competitors, that is, the government monopoly of the postal service, it is impossible to continue a high profit. And even monopolists are not psychic. No one knows the future, and there can be no such thing as a normal rate of profit. Profits are temporary. They simply reflect the market's readjustment to consumer wants. When the market readjusts, the profits disappear. I'm talking here about pure profit. What often goes under the name of profit is either remuneration for the managers of an enterprise or interest on invested capital. We must not try to restrict profit or hamper the ability of entrepreneurs to make profits. Profits show producers what consumers want. The existence of profits means that capital resources are continually being redirected in the most consumer-satisfying manner. As businessmen in search of profits increase the supply of goods demanded by consumers, prices fall and thus, paradoxically, a socialist might think profits reduce the cost of living. That's Adam Smith's invisible hand at work. When government places restrictions on profits, the results are lower production, high cost, and waste. If businessmen cannot hope to receive a profit in a particular industry, they will turn their attention and capital elsewhere. This means that production will be lower for a good that is in demand and thus prices will be higher. And remember, if the government seeks to alleviate this by controlling the price, there will be an even greater shortage of the good. Furthermore, a controlled industry which must not make more than a certain profit percentage <coughs> will thus try to appear to be not very successful. One way to reduce profit 
is to increase cost. Potential profits will be converted into activities that raise the cost of production, thereby disguising the actual profit from the government inspectors. Offices will become fancier. New typewriters will be purchased, along with more pencil sharpeners, copying machines, extra and prettier secretaries, more employees of the preferred racial background, fatter expense accounts, a fleet of company cars, and so on. If profits had not been restricted, the businessmen would have poured the new capital generated into the production of the desired good. But with profit restrictions, there is waste. Note again a basic lesson. Socialism cannot produce wealth. It can only destroy what wealth exists. It cannot generate. It can only confiscate. The only reasons for complaining about profits are envy and ignorance. But those who truly desire to be biblical Christians will learn to conquer their envy and decrease their ignorance. Both goals will be achieved by submitting to God's authoritative revelation in His law, the standard of justice. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.